We have been talking about stewardship, but really not about stewardship in terms of money per se, but really about uh, Jesus. Jesus first. Jesus first. We've talked about Jesus being our first love three weeks ago, and then the importance of him having first place. Last week we talked about as he has first place, that to him belongs the first portion, the first fruits of all that the Lord blesses us with. We give to him as an act of worship, the first fruits to him. And all of that flows out of the truth that should be in our hearts and our minds that Jesus is our first vision. He's our first vision. And that's what we will be talking about this morning from Colossians chapter 1. You know, many years ago, I was uh, bringing a series of messages uh, from uh, the book of 1 Timothy. And so I was just preaching through the entire book of 1 Timothy. And as I am wont to on occasion, I was taking my time about it, okay? And uh, someone who had been coming for a while, uh, I suppose, uh, came to see me after one of the services and said, you know, this 1 Timothy is good, but when are we going to get some vision? No, when are we going to get some vision? I've been wanting some vision. I don't know if I you know, really want to stay here. If I'm just not going to hear some vision for the church. I don't know if I'm going to stay here. So, you know, I was, just wanted to be nice. So I walked into his car and opened the door for him. And I went out in Middlebrook, stopped traffic so he could, he could go. No, I did not do that. I did not do that. Everybody, I felt the air go out of the room when I said that. No, I did not do that. But what I was thinking in my mind when he said that was vision for the church. First Timothy, vision for the church. What's the message of First Timothy? Vision for the church. You know, is it just me? Is it just me? I've told people, you'll know I'm just about ready to leave when I announce my series is it just me? <laughs> that'll, be, that'll, be, that'll be my opportunity. Is it just me? You know, And you'll know someone asked me a question like, when are we going to get vision for the church? And so I'll announce my series. But in reality, vision, what is vision? We can get so confused about vision. And if you don't get anything else this morning, what I want you to hear from this message is that the vision of the church is not the same as vision for the church. The vision of the church is not the same as vision for the church. Now, it's a wonderful thing to have vision for the church. Our church has a vision that God's put upon our hearts. As a matter of fact, we have a vision statement for our church. And that is that we desire that our church would become more and more intentional about reaching our community with the ministry and the message of God's love. That, that's our vision. That God's put on our heart, yes, to be a people gathering together in worship that he brings from all over this region, quite frankly, but also to be a church as we gather here in this community, to be a church that does something more than just add to traffic problems on Sunday morning, but to be a church that is sharing with the community, impacting the community with the message and the ministry of God's love in Christ. That, that's our vision. 
And the 2020 vision that we are focusing on now, it, it leads us into that, that vision for our church. This started over 15 months ago as we announced this, as the pastor shared about this 2020 vision for our church, which is a, about that three-year period of time that we said would help us to focus on this. Last year's Jehovah Jireh offering went to primarily the aspect of beginning the Cedarbrook Outreach mission from our church and how God moved in your hearts generously, how God has provided uh, these last six to eight months that that mission has become a reality have been phenomenal as we have seen the ministry and the message of God's love going into our community, especially to children and to families at risk. Lives are being changed. Missionaries are are being supported and going out into this Cedarbrook community of 40 plus thousand people within two miles of where we live. It's been amazing. Soon we'll be seeing some folks baptized uh, as a result of them coming to know the Lord through that Cedarbrook outreach. So we're grateful for that. This year's aspect of the 2020 vision has to do with how we can continue to develop this campus for that mission of ministering to us as a body, but also be a body of believers ministering the gospel effectively in, in word and in deed to our community and as we expand this campus and, and change some of the buildings we have for other purposes adding to our family ministry through the children's building, and in time as God provides, building that place of worship that we can gather as one body together, and this facility being able to use for other uh, aspects of uh, making disciples. It's a big vision, and we're trusting God to be Jehovah Jireh and to provide, and that is what this offering is about today. The first part of that is we have said we are committed to waiting until we've raised $500,000 to start the implementation of that next phase of this vision. But what is the vision of the church? It's wonderful for a church to have vision. But what is the vision? You see, vision has to do with seeing Vision has to do with what is seen. That's vision. And friends, I do not want us to have any blurry vision about what our vision is as a church. I don't want us to have anything but 2020 or even better vision about what is the vision of our church. And the vision of our church is Jesus. That's the vision of our church. Jesus Christ is the vision Seeing Jesus, we are a people gathered to see Jesus. That means to know him personally, to see God's grace in him, to be known by him. And then for Jesus to be seen from us and through us, wherever we go to live and work and play and in our community around here. That is the vision of the church, the vision of the church has always been the same. It's Jesus. The vision of the church is Jesus. The reason this, I chose this passage, and I believe I was led to do so, is because we don't want any competing visions to that vision of Jesus. Seeing him and by his grace 
Jesus being seen through us. We don't want any competing visions because if we're not careful, it will result in disaster. If there is a competing vision with the vision of Christ. And that was what was happening here in this city of Colossae. We come to this passage now. Now, a little historical background. The church of Colossae, Paul had never been there. He had never seen these people. However, the church had been founded out of an overflow of his ministry. We're told in the book of Acts that he spent three years in Ephesus, which was 40 or 50 miles away from Colossae. For three years, the gospel was so impacting that pagan city and that pagan culture that within the three years, we are told that all who lived in the province of Asia Minor heard the message about Jesus the Messiah. From that church in Ephesus, some church planters went out, missionary church planters. Some of them early on made their way to Colossae, and there a church was founded. Eventually, the pastor of that church was a man by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras. And as he was pastoring this church, one of the elders of the church... He became aware of some things that had come into the church that were competing for the purity of the message of Jesus Christ. And so he needed insight. He needed assistance in how to deal with this. So we're told that he made the journey all the way to, where Rome, to Rome where Paul was. He was in Rome in a rented house waiting for his first appointment to stand before Caesar Nero. On trial. And so Epaphras goes to see Paul. He shares with Paul about these competing visions for the church, what's happening inside. And so Paul gives him counsel and then writes this letter that is in our Bibles as the book of Colossians. It's a letter written to a church to make sure there are no competing visions other than the vision of Christ. Now, what were these competing visions? Just let me briefly tell you what they were. One was a Judaistic Christianity. What was happening, there were uh, Judaistic people who had come evidently from Jerusalem and said, Hey, you Gentiles, fine, you can believe in our Jewish Messiah. But if you're going to believe in our Jewish Messiah, you've got to become Jewish. You've got to take all the rites and the, all the practices of our religion and add them to your worship of Jesus. And so there was this Judaistic Christianity that was impacting the church. But then there were those who were not really converts. They were pagans. And they were trying to adapt the message of just, uh, Christianity and Christ to pagan religion so there was a pagan Christianity. And what this pagan Christianity was teaching is that, yes, Jesus is the Christ, but the Christ is just one messenger from God. There have been many messengers from God. And Jesus is giving us special knowledge, but there's more knowledge that you need. There's more wisdom for you so that you can go higher and higher in your knowledge till you will really have the full secret knowledge of God. But Jesus is just one of those messengers. That was being taught then. Friends, that's being taught today. Still taught today in churches and in 
organizations that say they are spiritual, that you're initiated, you learn a few secrets, and then you go up and then eventually you know the true knowledge of God. That is a pagan form of Christianity. Now this was there in the church, and so Paul's got to write to deal with this, and he says, listen, there are no competing visions. Christ is all and in all. He is preeminent, and he must be held above all as the head of all things and all truth. Everything is sufficient in Jesus Christ. That was what was spurring Paul on. And so what do we learn from these words from Paul? Well, first of all, we learn that Christ is preeminent. He's preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in creation. Look at verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. I remember hearing a story years ago of a little boy. He was in Sunday school. And uh, they were drawing, they were given time to draw pictures of their favorite things in the Bible. And so Johnny was scribbling away with a crayon. And the teacher came over and said, Johnny, uh, what's your picture? And he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, well, I've got to help Johnny out here. You know, Johnny, God's invisible. Nobody can see God. And nobody knows what God looks like. And Johnny didn't stop. He said, well, they will when I'm finished. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of liked his attitude a little bit, right? Listen, when Jesus had finished his work, everybody knew what God looked like. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see that word image in verse 15? The the word there is icon, icon, which means an image or a stamped image. It means that Jesus is the very visible representation of God. He's the image of God. In Christ, here's the message. In Christ, the invisible God is made visible. That's the message. And that's what we're going to celebrate at Christmas, right? Above all things, that in Christ, the invisible God has become visible. He has become to us and he's become one of us that he might save us. He is the image of the invisible God. Look at verse 15 again. He is, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Now notice that word firstborn. This is a very interesting word. The word firstborn here is a word that's pronounced prototakos, prototakos. And it doesn't mean first in birth order. That's not what it means. It means the one who has the highest rank of of all the children, of all the family. This one is the firstborn. He has the highest privilege and highest rank. Well, notice what it's saying here. Jesus is the ranking one. He's the firstborn. He is the supreme one of all creation. And why is that so? He's the supreme one in creation because look at verse 16. He is the creator. He is the creator. Listen to verse 16. 
For by him, whom? Christ. By Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Whether they're visible or invisible, whether there are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and were created for him. What a thought that is. What a thought. The eternal Son of God, God the Son, who we know as Jesus, is the Creator Himself. Think about what that means. It means it was Jesus' voice that said, let there be light. It was the hand of Jesus, you could say, that scooped out the oceans. It was the breath of Jesus that was breathed into the nostrils of Adam and he became a living soul. Think about what this means. It was Jesus who created the manger he was laid in. It was Jesus who created the cross that he was laid on. It was Jesus who created the spike that nailed him to the tree. It was Jesus who created the stone that sealed him in the tomb. I'm telling you, you need to take another look at Jesus. He is not just one of many. He's just not the first of many. He is the one and only. He is God himself. He is the Lord of all the material world. But look at verse 16. He is also the Lord of the spiritual world, visible and invisible. Whether there be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now this was going right at those pagan teachers who said there's all these levels of angelic beings. And these levels of angelic beings get you closer and closer to God. And Jesus is one of these angelic beings. And Paul said, no, he is not. These angelic beings, whether there be thrones or powers or rulers or dominion, they were all made by him. Jesus is not just the Lord of the angels. Jesus is the creator of the angels. The angels know him. They worship him. And even the fallen angels know him. And they shudder and shriek in terror at him. And one day they will all bow the knee to him. And even that arch devil himself, Satan, Lucifer, will bow the knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's going to happen one day. My friend, don't compare Jesus to the angels. He is so much higher than the angels. He is the Son, the eternal creator and until that day when satan himself kneels before jesus until that day look in verse number 17 jesus is holding all things together in him all things consist all things consist There's some great theology in a song you might not think is theological. You want to sing it for a minute? Let's sing this great hymn of the faith. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world 
In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. And we ought to say in church, amen. (laughs) It's all in his hands. It's all in his hands. Friends, listen. Do not think the world is going to the devil. The world is in the hands of Jesus Christ and is going to him. He is, it is going to him. He is the Lord. He holds everything together. Even science can't explain it. The very laws of science, the atomic laws of science, tell us that the whole world should be coming apart. The particles should be repelling. The fact that you exist, this stand exists, the, this church exists, it should be impossible. There's a force they can't figure out that holds it all together. What is it? Well, we don't know yet. We'll just call it the force. And there's a dark side and there's a light side. And I want to tell you, that force is a farce. All right? The only force is the force of the hands of the Son of God. That's the force that holds all things together. Friends, I want to tell you, take another look at Jesus. That's the vision. That's the vision of the church. Christ is preeminent in creation. And that means if he's preeminent in creation, of all places, he ought to be preeminent there then is where? Preeminent in the church. Preeminent in the church. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is the creator of the church. He said, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. It's my church and he is sovereign over his church. He is the head. That means that the church is under Christ. The church is not under any man or any group of men. The church is not under any authority of any group of churches or any denominational structure. The head of the church is Jesus Christ, who's the master of the church. The church is under his control, but thank God it's under his care. Isn't that wonderful? It's under his care. It's his body. It's connected to him. It's his, his literal being. His body is the church. He's sovereign in the church. He's the source of the church. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. Now, think about that. How is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? Because he was not the first to rise from the dead. He raised some people from the dead. In the Old Testament, we read of people being raised from the dead. Well, how is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? Well, you remember firstborn here. He is prototakos means he's the first in a brand new resurrection because everybody who was ever resurrected from the dead before had to do something all over. What? Die. You know, 
Someone said Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. Perhaps he was weeping because he knew he wasn't doing Lazarus any favor. Because he was going to have to come back and go through it all again. But the Bible says when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose to life and he lives forevermore, never to die again. He's the first of the new body, the new humankind, his people who are being raised. We're being raised spiritually in him. We're already with him in heaven. We're already seated with him. But one day he's coming back. And all of his followers that have trusted to him will rise to meet him in the air and will always be with the Lord. And one day our graves will be just like his grave, empty. And we'll be with him forever and ever. But he's the first of the resurrection. He's the source of the church. And so he's supreme over the church. In everything, he must have the preeminence. Verse 18. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, this is Paul's nail in the coffin to pagan Christianity that says there are many ways to God or that Jesus is just a God but not the God. Notice what it says. In him... The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know what Paul is using there? He's using the pagans' word. Their word was pleroma. They called the ultimate Godhead, Godhood, the pleroma. All of these angelic beings could help you get there with secret knowledge until you could be mystically brought into the great knowledge of the divine. This is where Eastern mysticism, New Age as we refer to it sometimes, it's ancient. It's not New Age, it's just the old lie, okay? He is the Pleroma. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ so that Jesus could say, Philip, have I been so long with you and you haven't figured it out? If you have seen me, what? You have seen the Father. I and my Father are one. All the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. Friends, take another look at Jesus. He is everything and everything is his. He is everything to the church and everything is his. Christ is the creator of his church And look at verse 20 briefly. Christ is still creating the church. He's creating the church. He's using this fullness of the Godhead to do what? Verse 20. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh. That's the incarnation. Why was he incarnated? So he could die in the body of his flesh by his death. In order to present you holy... And blameless and above reproach before him. What was it the angels sang the night Jesus was born? Peace on earth. Peace on earth. Why? Because the Prince of Peace had been born. 
How would he become the prince of peace? He would make peace. Mankind is at war with God. But he came to make peace. How would he make peace between an offended God and offending sinners? What can possibly make peace between an offended holy God and offending rebel sinners? What can make the peace? He can make peace by the blood of his cross. That's how the peace is made. There was a peace treaty ratified in the blood of Jesus. It was printed out in his perfect life and his death, and it was nailed to the cross. That's where peace was made. That's how peace has come, and that's the only peace there will ever be. Men may say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. There's only peace when a person comes to peace with his maker through his maker who has come to bring him back to himself. Jesus Christ by his own death. Jesus is the preeminent peacemaker, right? He's the preeminent peacemaker. And he makes peace with rebel sinners. Friends, we need to get this into our hearts. Don't let the theology of the incarnation just rattle in your brain. Don't let these incredible truths just tantalize your thinking. Though you need to ponder these and consider these. But understand what's being said. He came to make peace with rebel sinners. And that's me and that's you. We were not neutral. We were all going our own way. We would all turn to our sins. Not one of us was seeking him. No, not one. From the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet, we were filled with sin and sinning. We were alienated against him. We were enemies against our God. And that God overcame our rebellion with his own blood. What a God we serve. And that's our story. Our story is that Christ is preeminent in every Christian's life. He's in the creation preeminent, in the church he's preeminent, but he's preeminent in the Christian's life. Verse 21, and you, hey, write your name right there sometime. And you, and I'm talking about you, Sam Polson, who were once alienated, And Sam Polson, you were hostile in your mind. And Sam Polson, you were doing evil deeds. Christ has reconciled you, Sam Polson, in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you, Sam Polson, holy and blameless and before him without reproach. Wow. Now, friends, if that doesn't grip your heart, I don't know what else can. These are not just words about what might have happened or could have happened. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, this has happened. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. Our whole life story is here. Jesus conquered us. But how did Jesus conquer us? He conquered us by his love. Jesus liberated us. How did he liberate us? He liberated us by his death. And Jesus has exalted us. Why? 
because his victory is our victory. And his ascension is ours. A brand new world, my friends, is created when we truly see Jesus. A brand new world is created when you truly see Jesus. One of my favorite verses of Scripture is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And it's where Paul wrote these words. He said, God, who caused the light to shine out of the darkness, has shined into our hearts. And that's utter darkness, right? He shined into our hearts doing what? Bringing light. What light? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where do we we find the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's the reason what we sang here this morning, friend, is so true. When you are in heaven, or you arrive there, you won't be focusing on the gates of pearl, the streets of gold. You won't be looking to all the wonders of heaven. And I want to tell you, as much as you loved him or loved her, you won't be, first of all, looking for them. You will be transfixed on the face of Jesus Christ. The one who loved you and gave himself for you. Your God who became your Savior so that you might become his child forever. That is the rapture of heaven. You see, when you see Jesus, when Jesus becomes that vision, has that ever happened to you, my friend? Has it ever happened to you that all of life came to have meaning and focus when you saw that it was the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus? That is life. And when that is your life and you see him, then you can truly see. You'll never see life the same, ever. When Jesus becomes your vision, then you can truly see. I'm not a good song leader. I'm not even a good singer. You know that. I've heard some of you. You're not that hot yourself either. (laughs) But when we... See him, then we can see. Why? It's amazing grace. Sing it with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found, listen, was blind, but now I see. Because of his amazing grace, you see, you see. When you truly see Jesus, here's what happens. You begin to see what he sees. You begin to see what he sees. I love these two chapters in the Bible, John 3 and 
the Gospel of John chapter 3 and Gospel of John chapter 4 because I love what the Holy Spirit did there. What happens in John chapter 3? The best man on earth comes to visit Jesus. The greatest rabbi, the finest man, one of the richest men comes to see Jesus. His name's Nicodemus. Didn't want people to see him, so he came at night. You know, that's the reason I call him Nick at night. Okay. <laughs> He's the best. He's the best. And you know what the disciples were saying? You know what they were saying. Hey, Nicodemus is here. He's going to join our team. Man, I can see that. Can't you see that? Yeah. What did Jesus see? Nicodemus, you must be born again. He loved him, but wasn't impressed by his religiousness or his moral goodness. He said, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. The disciples didn't see that coming. And it was a few days later, Jesus said, hey, let's go back to Galilee. And they all said, yeah. It's getting a little touchy down here in Jerusalem. Let's go back to Galilee. And Jesus says, and by the way, we've got to go through Samaria. Whoa. They didn't see that coming. And not only did they go through to Samaria, where the Samaritans hated them and they hated the Samaritans and went back for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they're going to go through the capital city of Samaria. And if that's not enough, Jesus not only goes through the capital, he wants to drink water. <laughs> he wants to stay a while. And then he starts talking to a woman. Not a good woman. Oh, they didn't see that coming. They didn't see that coming. The woman didn't see it coming. But what did Jesus see? He saw a woman who had been used and abused and abused, who had given up on anything but just a faint hope that maybe someday the Messiah might come. And Jesus told her, the one who's talking to you, that's who I am. And she, she believed. She was amazed. And she ran to tell the men in the town because all the men in the town knew her. She ran to tell them, hey, come see this man that told me everything I've ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they come running out of the city with their white turbans and they come running down the hill and here come these enemies of the Samaritans charging down the hill at the disciples and they really didn't see this coming. And what did Jesus say? See this. See this. See what? Don't you say it's three months to the harvest? Look at the wheat. Look at the bobbing turbans. It's rotting in the field. The harvest is already here. This is it. Stop seeing these Samaritans. Stop seeing these enemies. These are the people I've come to save. And pray that the Lord will send out laborers into his harvest. 
Oh, they didn't see that coming. When we see Jesus, we see like Jesus. We see like Jesus. When I told a few I was going to preach on this passage on this Sunday, they said, what does that have to do with an offering, giving? Nothing. But everything. Because what does the Bible say? To see him, to truly see him is to love him. And if you love him, then you'll treasure him. And if you treasure him where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If your treasure is in Jesus, you just throw the calculator away. Jesus didn't see multitudes. He just saw people who were hungry. Little children weren't an interruption to Jesus. These little vagabond kids, they weren't in the way. Jesus wasn't thinking, you know, be careful. Some of these kids might, might not be a good influence for your kids. No. He said, they're of the kingdom of God. Jesus saw every person as an image bearer. He didn't see Gentiles. and He didn't see people who are of another color. He didn't see people who were sinners. He saw friends. People who... He loved. Jesus didn't just love sinners. He liked them. Don't let yourself get away with that saying, well, you know I love sinners. Like them. Because you know what? We're sinners too. And God not only loves us, He likes us. Jesus sees the lonely. He says, I make them family. He wants people, people in his family. It's not about the size of the family. It's just family. May we see that because we see Jesus. We see what he sees. 